From Al Jazeera English, welcome to The Debrief. I'm Laurencio Colintinano. We're kicking off today's show with a quick reminder that you can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn and Google Play. So don't forget to subscribe on any of these platforms and get our new episodes delivered straight to your device. All right. Now, today we want to circle back to a story we told you some weeks ago. That episode was called Rape and Peacekeeping in a Forgotten Corner of Africa, and it was about sexual assault by UN peacekeepers. So back then, we heard from our correspondent Azad Essa, who had spent months investigating this issue. I've been covering the Central African Republic civil war as such for the past three years. While covering that story, we found that this, there was a side story that was also taking place as well, like popping up. And it was a story about peacekeepers abusing the people that they were supposed to be looking after. So when you consider the, the madness that is taking place in the Central African Republic, you have peacekeepers in one of the most neglected areas of the world performing these heinous acts. And to further jog your memory, Azad also told us about a 13-year-old girl from Bangui, and she had a terrible story. We met um, a young girl, a teenager, on the outskirts of, of Bangui. She was 13 at the time when the incident took place. She was raped by a Congolese peacekeeper and she fell pregnant, gave birth to a little boy. And um, the parents, when they found out about the situation actually, they wanted to report it. But the Congolese soldier promised that he would marry her. And uh, so for one and a half years, they had this relationship. He would give them money and help them out with supplies and basically buying off their silence and also the hope that you know maybe he'll take us to another place you know but he was transferred back home and he left and so he gone disappeared so she went to the UN and asked uh, or said like you know I have something to report and they're like uh, it's too late like go back home I mean one lady also told me this from the UN said that they only come to complain when the guy disappears you know Let's forget the fact that he actually raped a minor. Basically, completely washing away the power imbalance in this relationship and the desperation of the people. Okay, now picture this. After that episode went out, the United Nations got in touch. And they wanted to talk. So our editor, Yasser Khan, called up Atul Kare. His title is Undersecretary General for the UN Department of Field Support. What that means in real life is that he's the person who oversees what happens when a peacekeeper is accused of sexual abuse. Mr. Kare, if you can tell me, what is the UN's current policy on responding to allegations of sexual abuse by peacekeepers in the field? Uh, let me uh, begin first and foremost by reiterating that sexual abuse... Uh, is, uh, is indeed a global menace. I mean, it's not only a question of sexual abuse by UN peacekeepers or by other uh, departments or agencies uh, of the United Nations, but uh, indeed uh, even outside of the United Nations. And I think uh, what I believe is that uh, sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, this global menace, must cease. Now, what are we doing within that? I think uh, first and foremost, uh, under the new Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, uh, we have changed our focus to focus much more on victims, putting victims at the center of our attention, uh, 
And then, of course, we need to focus on ensuring uh, accountability for the perpetrators of such acts, which involves uh, investigations, it involves a partnership with uh, countries of the peacekeepers. Uh, and we also need to focus on prevention, on training, to ensure that uh, these acts, uh, abominable that they are, are not repeated. That is where we are. I, we, we do believe that our new strategy is bearing some initial fruit. Uh, in fact, uh, in the first 11 months of this year, of course, even one allegation is an allegation too many, but uh, we recorded 53 allegations, which is roughly half of the allegations which were recorded during the same period uh, in 2016. So statistically, we do believe that we are seeing some results. Uh, but yes, there is a mm -hmm. long way to traverse. I have no doubt about that. What you've said is has to do with the future. But, you know, let me go into the past for a bit. Okay. Uh, according to a recent investigation by the Associated Press, between 2004 and 2016, so over 12 years, uh, the UN received almost 2,000 allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse. And these were allegations against its peacekeepers. What has been the UN response to those allegations? In fact, uh, most of those allegations, and uh, I don't know if you are aware, uh, the details which Associated Press got, uh, they got from our public website. And we have been reporting publicly on the allegations uh, over the last two years of uh, my heading this department in a very transparent manner. I mean, uh, and uh, in... Uh, Quite a few of those allegations, obviously the allegations uh, which belong to the period between 2004 to 2006 uh, and even up to 2009, even before my, the Department of Field Support was actually established. We keep on looking at them. I, I have been following up on all the allegations. We must understand that not all allegations are substantiated after, a, after an investigation. But uh, where the allegations are substantiated, we want to see criminal accountability, criminal actions. In some, ac in some cases, or in, I would say in many cases, uh, this has taken place. Uh, but there are many cases where uh, we still continue to work with the member states to ensure that appropriate action is taken. How many convictions would you say, sir, have there been in all this time? How many peacekeepers have been convicted, if any? Oh, quite a few, quite a few. In fact, uh, just to tell you the recent examples, uh, last year, and I, I consider it as a, as a good example, last year we had a case which was reported against a peacekeeper from Egypt. The Egyptians, they immediately investigated, they concluded their investigation in a period le slightly less than three months, uh, which was exceptional, they uh, found that the allegation of a sexual assault not amounting to rape was justified. They not only removed the peacekeeper from service, which I think was the minimum that we expected, but they also mm -hmm. awarded a rigorous imprisonment of five years uh, to this particular mm -hmm. peacekeeper, and he's still serving a sentence uh, in jail. What is the investigation procedure? So let's say I'm a 14-year-old in a refugee camp uh, in the Central African Republic, and I get raped by one of the UN peacekeepers there. What happens next? I go to you guys and say, you know, I've been raped by one of your people. What happens next? Uh, what happens is that uh, as soon as we get the report, uh, that means within hours of you informing uh, uh, or anybody, any victim informing us, uh, we write to the country of the nationality of the peacekeeper concerned asking them to appoint a national investigating officer. You know, initially, about 10 years ago, 
the countries used to take close to 80 days to appoint a national investigating officer. This period has been brought down now to about nine days. And the national investigating officer can either work alone or if there is a serious case, for example, like uh, the case of a child rape, uh, I would want the investigation to be held conjointly with uh, the Office of Internal Oversight Services, uh, which is the independent body within the United Nations uh, to investigate any case of malfeasance, misconduct, uh, fraud, corruption, and of course, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse. These investigations should logically be concluded according to our memorandum of understanding uh, uh, within a period of 180 days. And following these investigations, if the case is substantiated, of course, uh, it, uh, it goes through the judicial process to determine the punishment that should be awarded. But you understand that who is responsible at the end of the day a UN peacekeeper who has been accused of committing rape, let's say against an adult or a child, who is ultimately responsible and who is the ultimate arbiter of justice in this scenario? Is it the UN or is it the country that that soldier comes from? No, the country from where the soldier comes from, because the Uni United Nations, you would appreciate, uh, does not have its own criminal laws. It cannot. It's an international organization, not a member state. And therefore, the member state uh, which is deploying the soldier is responsible, but we take a special interest to see that uh, the justice is actually done, that uh, the people do not go scot-free. Mm -hmm. So isn't this sort of, you know, different countries have different laws and different attitude towards sexual abuse. How do you as the United Nations maintain a standard of, of justice when your peacekeepers are from several different countries that have several different legal attitudes towards sexual abuse, how do you ensure that victims, whether it be in Pakistan or in the Central African Republic, get the same quality of justice as opposed to, you know, a justice varying depending on what country um, the soldier was from? I think this is a very, very important question, and I agree with you that this is a major challenge. For example, uh, United Nations defines, uh, according to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, any person below the age of 18 as a, as a child. Uh, and therefore, we define uh, any uh, sexual contact with a person below the age of 18 uh, as, uh, by definition, sexual abuse. But then you know that uh, the age of uh, consent, the age of marriage is different in different countries. And this has been a challenge for us. Uh, but uh, from the United Nations viewpoint, uh, and this we make clear to all countries concerned, uh, that uh, there are certain minimum standards, for example, which I mentioned to you, that for us the age of consent has to be beyond the age of 18 years and not below, even though that may be recognized as such. Another problem. Uh, which comes. For me, prostitution is by definition sexual exploitation and unacceptable. But then, peacekeepers are deployed in some countries where prostitution is legal, and they may come from some countries where prostitution is legal. Now, this creates a very major legal lacuna, how to deal with this case of prostitution, which according to internal UN rules, we consider sexual exploitation, and therefore we will remove the person from our service. I mean, that's a minimum which we can do. But how to deal with criminally when it is not an offense, either in the country where it happened or in the country of the nationality of the peacekeeper. So from the viewpoint of those countries, no crime has been committed. Right. And how do you deal with that? 
this is a major problem. We are trying to work with all the member states uh, to deal with these issues of consent and of uh, uh, what I would call uh, transactional sex. You know, I'm trying to define it slightly differently from right. sexual exploitation and abuse. But yes, these are two right. very big problems which we have, and we do not yet have solutions. I agree. But in the meantime, Mr. Kare, there are still kids and women and men who are being sexually abused. You must have some you you must have some measures in place that yeah. would mitigate those things. Yeah. No, for example, if if there's a question of rape, I mean, there is no country which can accept rape as consent. I mean, that is impossible. Uh, and there uh, we follow up. And to my mind, uh, the majority of cases which we get actually are uh, what I would define as uh, transactional sex, statutory rape, sexual assault, uh, and consensual sex leading to paternity, where we actually do not have only one victim, we have two victims, because then there is the yes. question of child support to be provided That's for the right. child which is born. Uh, and where right. we, we, in fact, we, we are uh, assisting the countries to do DNA testing. We collect the DNA of the mother, of the child. Uh, we get it verified against the DNA of the presumed father. And, and in many such cases, uh, from uh, uh, Uruguay through to Tanzania, fathers have been identified and uh, child support has been provided, including internally. But, course. you know, so, Mr. Kare, we, yeah. we reported in our previous podcast of a young woman in, in Bangui who was assaulted by uh, a UN peacekeeper. She subsequently felt pregnant. And uh, while the UN peacekeeper was in country, she was, you know, he provided the family with some level of support, I suppose, you know, food and, and whatnot, with a promise to uh, marry the girl. And then, of course, he was transferred out and she's never got justice. And there's literally hundreds of cases like this. No, I, um, you have said that, you know, you are transparent in reporting, but, you know, reporting is, isn't, uh, I'm sure you'd agree, reporting and transparency isn't justice. How would you address all of this backlog of cases that uh, you have on your desk uh, and have so far gone unresolved? Because sexual assault, uh, obviously, you know, very few cases where sexual assault is reported immediately. Sometimes it's reported days, months, weeks, even years later. This seems to be an ongoing problem for you guys. Yeah, and and I think uh, the only way we can do it is through partnership with the with the member states because accountability is a shared responsibility between both uh, us and the member states. Uh, and I think uh, we will just have to continue. I, I agree. It is frustrating uh, for us, and it is even more uh, frustrating and horrible, I would say, for the victims to wait for justice uh, almost, I would say, indefinitely, if not for a long period of time. And that is why we are promoting some changes. And some countries are following our advice. For example, Republic of South Korea, uh, Republic of South Africa, uh, excuse me, in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, we requested them that why don't they do their court martials inside Democratic Republic of Congo uh, so that the victims can actually see the justice which is being done. And, and this is one country which has done so. I, I'm, uh, I acknowledge its con uh, contribution towards greater accountability. And I agree with you that transparency in itself is not accountability. I mean, uh, uh, accountability is at, at least, to my mind, at three different levels. First, support to victims, uh, which has been 
I would say a neglected, not neglected, but uh, a issue which did not deserve, which did not get the prominence which it deserved uh, till the time our Secretary General took over on 1st of January earlier this year. Second level of accountability is uh, to ensure uh, that there is due criminal accountability. And third level of accountability is to ensure that in some cases we have uh, sent the entire peacekeeping contingent back and saying that no, till uh, the performance. What case of, would that be, sir? Sorry? Which case is that? Those, those cases are essentially back. two so far. The first is uh, a contingent from Democratic Republic of Congo where there were a large number of cases, uh, including Interalia in Bangi. I know the case which you are talking about, which is a case which is currently being adjudicated by the uh, legal system of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which are dealing with, uh, I think, around uh, 12 cases uh, from the Central African Republic. That contingent is no longer participating in peacekeeping. And a smaller company from Republic of Congo was withdrawn by the country itself, by Republic of Congo, upon our request when we found that uh, there were a number of cases uh, alleged against that particular company in a place called Dekoa in uh, the Central African Republic. Okay, so uh, let's say you remove the contingent of soldiers and, uh, and you uh, have a, you know, you convince some countries to court-martial their soldiers yeah, within yeah. the country of, yeah. uh, of where the crime is committed. Correct. What of the victims, sir? What, you know, reparations or how do you take care of the victims? Yeah, I think uh, on the victims, uh, there, are, there are three steps which I would say. First is uh, immediate medical and psychosocial support uh, if the case is reported to us uh, within days or weeks, uh, not, within, uh, not within years, because then uh, the system is slightly different. I mean, the needs are also slightly different. Second, it depends right. upon the case. For example, uh, as I told you, when it came to a question of a child born out of a uh, relationship between a peacekeeper and uh, a national of the host country, uh, we need to ensure that the child gets a proper birth certificate, a proper nationality certificate, and certain amount of allowance uh, for uh, their development, upkeep, education, health, and uh, uh, food and, and clothing. Some countries, for example, I know Uruguay is one of them, uh, they are deducting money regularly from the, from the salary of the peacekeeper, who is now a soldier in their country, and depositing it uh, in a bank account, which was designated by the mother of the child in, in Haiti. Some countries where peacekeepers have uh, sort of disappeared. This happened with one case, you know. This was a case of a major uh, from Sri Lanka. And... Uh, where he is now, we don't know. I mean, he's not in Sri Lanka. Maybe he's out. Maybe he has dumped his passport. And uh, upon our request, uh, the authorities of Sri Lanka made a sort of a trust fund uh, with a reasonable amount of money, which I don't want to disclose in a podcast, uh, whose interest uh, is taking care of the needs uh, of the child again in Haiti. But such cases have to be expanded. They are currently anecdotal. They are very few. Uh, and I want, really speaking, uh, the message to go across through this podcast uh, that uh, all of us together have a responsibility not only for, as I said, uh, psychosocial and medical support to the victims, where we have created a trust fund, uh, which now has about $1.5 million, and we are working on that, uh, with uh, mostly with projects in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Central African Republic. Second, on the side of criminal accountability, where we need 
the effective partnership of member states, and third, the long-term care of the children born out of such liaisons. Two more questions for you, Mr. Tell Khadr. Uh, the first one, you know, so I understand the procedure is that the UN works with the country from which the soldiers are from in order to get any kind of justice, yes, whatever kind of justice that might be available. Forgive me, sir, but what would you say if I were to tell you that this sounds like the UN and its agencies are washing their hands off the problem and, and shoving the problem onto the member states as opposed to, uh, I, I mean, the providing country yeah, as opposed yeah, to the yeah, UN taking yeah, action on its own. Yeah, the, the UN does take some actions on its own and which I'll explain to you later on, but there is a legal issue. The countries in the memorandum of understanding which they sign with us, when they provide their soldiers, uh, they absolutely insist that they retain the right uh, for uh, taking judicial action in case of any criminal accountability. There is not only a question of sexual exploitation and abuse. There may be a case of fraud. There may be a case of, uh, let's say, pilfering of uh, United Nations rations, which are provided to them. In all these cases, the ultimate judicial accountability rests with them. It is true because UN also does not have a court, and UN does not have its own criminal laws because it's an international organization. One of the uh, a senior military person, uh, person who we interviewed in Bangi uh, had said that he tells his soldiers not to sexually exploit the locals because it would bring shame on, on the country. Is that the UN's line that, you know, this is unbecoming of a soldier rather than why not tell the soldiers don't rape, don't rape people? No, no, I, I will tell much more. I think any sexual exploitation and abuse, it's more than rape. I, for me, even an attempted sexual assault, uh, which may not result in rape, is, is sexual exploitation and abuse. And I would say that this is contrary to the principles and purposes of the United Nations. I would say that it is illegal. I would say that beyond all this, it is uh, something for which they will be held responsible by their own country's national judicial systems. Uh, so it is, it is a illegal and criminal activity, uh, pure and simple. Insofar as shame on the countries is concerned, I think uh, the shame is actually on the individual, not on the country. The shame question of the country comes if the country does not take the required actions to investigate and does not take the required judicial actions to ensure criminal accountability. As I said in the beginning, we have a long way to traverse. I am the first mm -hmm. to acknowledge that. But uh, the countries are improving their performance on, on both investigation mm -hmm. and on action. Mr. Carter, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Yasir. There's no better and more proud way to end this episode than with a big shout out to our journalist Azad Essa. Because the United Nations recently awarded his work on this story a silver medal in the United Nations Correspondents Association International Prize. Azad and we at The Debrief will continue to bring you in-depth stories like this one, holding the powerful to account. And next week, as I had promised, we're going to the Philippines, because we're taking a closer look at President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs. See you then. <laughs>